welcome back to Reading for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers, where we take an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. My name is Drew Dick. I am an editor and author and host of the podcast. I appreciate you joining us. Our theme for this season, which is our third season, is Press On. And I think that's particularly uh, timely given the moment we're in. We're still in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. And in addition to the thousands that are dying and the hundreds of thousands that are sick, uh, a lot of us are stuck inside. Uh, Businesses are closed. People are hurting economically. On top of that, they're feeling isolated and fearful. And I guess my hope for this podcast at this point is, is that in a very small way, we can introduce you to some great authors and books that will turn your eyes towards Christ and inspire you to press on in spite of the current challenges. And also, hopefully, just be a little bit of a diversion for you as well. I am so excited to introduce our guest today. He's an old friend of mine. And when I say old friend, I don't mean he's old. He's like in his mid-30s, but I've known him for a long time. (laughs) Brandon O'Brien is an author, um, a gentleman, and a scholar. Literally, I mean he's a scholar. He has a PhD in historical theology. He is the Director of Content Development for City to City, which is the church planting network led by Tim Keller. Uh, He's author of numerous books. I won't even name them all, uh, but a couple, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, and most recently, Not From Around Here, What Unites Us, What Divides Us, and How We Can Move Forward. He and his wife, Amy, and their two children live in New York. Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I've been looking forward to this. I have too, man. It's just re- great to reconnect. Brandon and I worked at Christianity Today together uh, a few moons ago now uh, for, a, for a brief period. I think we overlapped there by a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I got to bring this up. For a, a brief period there, I was your boss. At least kind of like half your time, I think, was allocated to one of the product lines that I was working on. Does That's this sound right. familiar? Yeah, yeah vaguely, right. And I remember all the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've repressed the memory. See, I I remember you coming into my office and just sitting at my feet, uh, figurative, <laughs> figuratively, not literally, but just drinking in my wisdom. That's how I remember it. I guess my first question for you, Brandon, is when you look at the success that you've had, the books that you've written, um, is it my encouragement that helped you do it, or was it more of my example? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. You know, it's really, it's hard to narrow it down to one thing. Um, I understand. Yeah. So, um, so both, yeah. that's fine. So both exactly. Right? It's all of the above. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we did have some good conversations. Um, now you are in New York, um, yes. in an apartment yes. with small children <laughs> in yes. the middle of yeah. this outbreak that cannot be easy. How are you guys holding up in the midst of all this? Well, you know, there are places I would rather be for sure than uh, in this apartment with all of these people at the same time. Um, by these sure. people, of course, I mean my family. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I do love them and I like them. But we have uh, have spent every waking hour together now since March 12th, I believe. Uh, so just over a month. Um, we're making it and I'm actually really, the kids have, um, have 
you know, really they've been through a lot of trauma. Their school year was abruptly cut short and they went from, um, both of them in classes that they love. They love their teachers and they have good friends to trying to figure out how to do school online. And then they stopped with the online part and it was just remote. You know, they have assignments and we send pictures of the things to their teachers. And so it's been a lot of loss for them. Um, And uh, we've had our flare ups and we've had our (laughs) meltdowns, all four of us at this point. And, um, but I'm just really impressed with how they've, uh, you know, managed all of this disappointment. And um, so, yeah, we're, I think we've sort of crossed over from the, this is all new and difficult to like, this is kind of just our life for the foreseeable future. And and, um, the new normal. That's good. Yeah. So the downside is the weather is getting nice. We live right across the street from a, a great big park and the flowers are budding and the leaves are coming out on the trees and it was easy to stay inside a month ago when it was 40 degrees sure. and raining. Um, but uh, it's going to be harder and harder to explain why we can't go to the playground, you know, now that the weather's nice. Oh yeah. Especially for kids. I mean, I get this cause uh, we're lucky in the sense that we're in a house with a yard, even though it's not a huge yard, uh, but they can go out there and chase each other around. Uh, that's gotta be a challenge. And you're right. You don't think of the losses for kids. Uh, you know, we had the same situation where we, you know, had to uh, pull the kids out of school and they're at home, at, which has been an adjustment. And initially with my oldest, uh, Athen, he was trying to do everything online and he just couldn't get the hang of it. And it was mm-hmm. like constantly calling us over to the computer. How do you type this? And <laughs> so finally we went <laughs> right. and got a physical packet for him to yeah. work through from his school, uh, which has helped, but yeah, it's an adjustment for everyone. Uh, New York of course has been hit the hardest. I mean, even, I think internationally, not just nationally. Yeah. Uh, at this point, I think it's over 10,000 uh, deaths in New York. Um, uh, my question for you, being right in the heart of the city, and I understand you're stuck inside, but what's the general mood there? And has there been anything that surprised you? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the mood is, um, you know, it's somber. It's, it's really kind of strange that the... Um, you know, none of our restaurants are open and, um, it, and it, for a little while restaurants were open, but only serving takeout. And I think maybe that's still technically allowed, but a lot of them can't exist that way. And so it's just, sure. there's fewer and fewer places that are open. And so you see some foot traffic on the sidewalks, people get out for exercise, but it's just really quiet, um, which is a little eerie in a place like New York, um, for the especially for to New York. Empty. Yes. Exactly. I'd imagine. Um, and you know, but there is this, uh, New York, New Yorkers are sort of proud of their, um, uh, uh, defiance of difficult circumstances. <laughs> um, mm. and, and so I think, so every, so one thing that's really interesting that sort of lightens the mood is every night at seven o'clock all across the city, all across the five boroughs, um, people raise their windows and they bang pots and pans and they whistle and scream and cheer and clap for um, healthcare workers and other oh. frontline workers. And um, awesome. it's been sort of a slow build in our neighborhood. Um, but now at seven o'clock, even if we forget it, you suddenly hear noise erupt outside. And, you know, so people are at the windows and you're 
waving at neighbors. And there's a woman at, across the street who comes out on the sidewalk every evening with a cowbell and, uh, you know, gets us all started. She's like the master of ceremonies, I guess. And I um, love it. So, yeah. So I think there's, it's, it's uh, somber and people are cautious. You know, one of the, we're allowed to go outside, but one of the things that uh, you have to remember is we live in the, on the third floor in an apartment building and so it's very hard for us actually just to get outside and across the street without touching a bunch of things. So we can't just sure. like open the back door. Especially it's, with kids, right? That touch everything on the, yeah, wherever they that's go. That's right. Yeah. So, so it's just, we, we try to go out early in the morning when a lot of people aren't out or that kind of thing. Um, but so, yeah, I think there's a sort of buoyancy in New York and there's actually, there's an interesting um, documentary. Uh, it's a PBS like multi episode documentary an older one it's prior to 9 11 because the twin towers are in all the b-roll um but the oh. uh it, it tells a story of in the i think in the 1700s there was a bombing on wall street outside uh some bank and um but it was like a horse and buggy that pulled up with dynamite and you know blew up on the sidewalk and um killed a bunch of people and, uh, but then the next morning people had cleared the debris, repainted the building and were open for business again. And wow. I think that's kind of how New York rolls. Like it's right. There's terror threats, there's national natural disasters, there's illness, but it's a, it's a resilient place. And, um, as someone who's relatively new to the city, I'm finding that pretty inspiring actually that the, um, the city doesn't take things like this laying down. So everybody's being cautious. Yes. But there's a pretty deep uh, well of courage and, um, yeah, just stubbornness <laughs> about making it through, you know, coming back. So, um, and I think one of the things that surprised me and may surprise other people is, you know, um, New York is not a monolith. It's a, a lot of, if you've only visited the city, you've probably seen Midtown, Central Park, you know, the Broadway Theater District and some of that area, maybe further south, the 9-11 Memorial and those things. Um, but you've got five boroughs that are all, they have their own personalities and every neighborhood is different. And, um, what I'm finding interesting and, and sad is that the, um, the illness is hitting different parts of the city differently. So just mm. today I spoke to a pastor, uh, who I work closely with and they've just had the 10th death, uh, in their congregation related to Man. coronavirus. Um, and we've had a couple of illnesses in our church, but, um, but even within the same city, these events are impacting different people very differently. Um, sure. and that can be disorienting. And so just trying to kind of yeah. understand when somebody says, what's it like in New York? I think, well, it, it depends on where you live <laughs> yeah. and what kind of job you have and your ethnicity and the density of your neighborhood. And, you know, it, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, but it, it is pretty revealing. Like it, it helps you see dynamics that are, have always been been at play in the city that you could miss, but something like this uh, reveals them, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so it's been, it we're still processing. For sure. Um, hmm. And uh, it probably will be for a while, but. That makes sense. Yeah. And New Yorkers do have that kind of national reputation as being tough, right? Yeah. And this is, this is testing it. And it is good to remember that, like you said, it's not a monolith. It's affecting different communities differently. And of course, New York is tremendously diverse yep. Man, and stories like that, like a church losing 10 people. It's just unthinkable, not only because of the loss, but then you can't even have funerals, right? I, I mean, know, it's right. just, that is just super, super tough. And so, 
Yeah, I got to keep remembering to pray for pastors, church leaders at this oh, time. Man. Yep. Their job just got a lot more difficult. That's right. It's all the normal things, but now you're doing, you know, then plus a bunch of crisis related stuff, you know. Um, but even the normal things that you have to do, you can't do the way you've always done them. <laughs> so it's right. it's like everybody's learning the job on the fly um, while the needs have <laughs> multiplied. And that's, I, I don't envy them. I, I'm in a position to support pastors. Um, and uh, this is, yeah, this is one of those places where you take that kind of work pretty seriously because they're, they need all the help they can get right now. Yep, exactly. There was no course in seminary about how to minister in the midst of a pandemic. <laughs> no, <laughs> at least that I can remember. There might be now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there might be now. Oh my goodness. Uh, well, hey, Brandon, as you know, because we've we've communicated about this, I love love your latest book, not from around thank here. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's just that. yeah, it's a beautiful, insightful, interesting, at times hilarious book. <laughs> um, and of course, one of the things it does is it looks at how as a nation, and you've touched on this already, I think just talking about New York, and this is true of a nation of the nation um, as well, that we're not monolithic, that we are divided um, geographically, culturally. And it seems like some of those divides have grown wider in recent years. Uh, so you're talking about that polarization. How do you feel this pandemic has affected that. And as we're talking, I can hear the ambulance in the background and that's fine. Hey, it's New York. Uh, that's probably a 911 call because of COVID-19. Um, yeah. Anyway, but how, do you see us becoming more divided because of this? Or, or do you see some glimmers of hope for unity? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I've seen both. Um, that may sound like the coward's way out <laughs> uh, of that question, but no, that's legitimate. I've seen both in the sense that there are... Um, I think there are parts of the country that have not yet been hit hard by the illness, right? That that have taken mm. precautions early, and either because the you know it wasn't going to happen there anyway, or because they acted quickly and stopped it. They just haven't seen you know significant Ill, you know rates of illness or loss of life. Um, and I expected fairly uniformly for those people to kind of or people in those contexts to kind of dismiss the severity of it. But I think the fact that we're connected by social media and, you know, people move around and you've got friends and family in other places, I have seen more people than I expected um, who live in fairly, uh, you know, isolators or um, relatively safe places respond with a, with a more awareness than I expected of the gravity of the situation. Hmm. Um and so, uh, so I have seen that. On the other hand, what I have seen is a sort of, in terms of division, is an increased sense of skepticism about news sources and who's oh, reporting yeah. what and who's telling the truth and how do we know, you know, how do we know what we know? Um, and I think that 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 worries me because I think you can say a lot about the way public discourse has sort of dropped off in America, right? And it's ugly and it's nasty and it's all those things. But I think the the thing that's most frightening for me is that we don't share as a country a baseline for what's real information, what's a trustworthy source, um, right. you know, what data are we all looking at to debate our various opinions? And I think something like this, on the one hand, knits us together because it's a shared trauma and that brings people together. But on the other hand, it, you know, it, it, uh, 
it, it further highlights how we get our news in different places. We listen to different pundits. We trust different mm -hmm. outlets. Um, and there's sort of knee jerk reactions against, you know, I mean, some people will keep going to church on a Sunday morning precisely because some liberal politician asked them not to. Right. And so there's right. that kind of push and pull in our, um, in our public discourse that's really troubling. And I think we're seeing, I don't know if we're seeing more of it, but we're certainly seeing a new example of it with all of this. Yes, I can tell you just anecdotally, I've been sent some pretty strange videos uh, about some <laughs> far-flung <laughs> conspiracy theories uh, related to this whole uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, anyway, so yeah. yeah, and you go, and then there's like those same people are incredibly skeptical of, of I think, what most people would consider mainstream outlets, and yet we'll go in for these conspiracy theories. And so that's always a little right. disconcerting, especially when it comes from Christians. You're like, man, come on. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think it becomes, you know, it's it's easy for that to stop being just um, a question of, of media and information and et cetera to, you know, there were times when our kids were already out of school for two weeks and the people, people that I knew in other parts of the country were saying, this is a hoax. There's, you know, it's fake news. There's no illness or whatever. I think, no, we already have, we already know people in the hospital. So like it, it becomes, right. it, it's not just um, harder to be skeptical in New York. Uh, it's harder yeah. to be skeptical, right. When you're seeing it uh, up close, but also it, it's hard not to not take it uh, personally or to feel defensive and say, look, I'm sure. not trying to defend that news outlet. I'm just telling you because we have church members in the hospital, you know, that this is not a hoax. And when yeah. you say that it is that that's uh, you know, that's hurtful for those who are suffering, et cetera, you know? And so it, it moves beyond just like unhelpful political discourse down into like deep interpersonal, um, you know, hurt and disagreement and yeah. that kind of stuff. And that cuts across, you know, within Christian circles, there are people on sort of both ends of the political spectrum and, um, you know, really on the whole spec, any spectrum you can think of. Um, but that means that these kinds of hurts and divisions are not just happening like out there in the world, they're happening within our Christian community. And, um, and I think that that's a, a wound that could last a while after, you know, with this runs its course and whatever's next, um, you know, there, there will be those who still think that it's a hoax and those who have lost dozens of church members and how those people, um, you know, move forward together as brothers and sisters in Christ will be, will be interesting to see. Yes, exactly. And we have a presidential election coming up in the fall, which I'm sure will bring us all together yeah. and heal <laughs> the divide. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, I, I want you to explain a little more to listeners about your book. Um, you you have kind of a, a bipolar existence uh, in the sense that you grew up. That's probably the wrong way to put it. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to get an angry email. Yeah. What I mean by that is that you grew up <laughs> in rural Arkansas. You're now a city slicker. Um, I, I'm wondering if you can, yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about why you wrote Not From Around Here and then talk a little bit about the biggest adjustment hmm. from, you know, moving from someone that had a background in, in a rural context to living in the big city. Yeah. So, yeah. So I grew up in, um, in Arkansas in, um, a small town and you know, the, the 
distinction between rural and small town is sometimes a matter of degrees, right? So like I lived in town, sure. but our, but there were cows grazing around our high school. So that's, you know, we're kind of <laughs> in, in the farmland in, in town. Um, my grandparents live in rural Louisiana and I spent my summers there. Um, in, in what even compared to my small town existence felt like a very rural sort of experience. And then we met in Chicagoland, uh, where my family lived for, about eight years. Um, after Chicagoland, we moved back to Arkansas for a few years before then moving here to Manhattan. So, so we've had sort of the small town tour. Yeah, that's exactly the small town, rural, suburban, back to small town now, like ultra urban sort of context. And, um, we moved for various reasons to go to grad school for a job, you know, et cetera, to be closer to family, those kinds of things. Um, and I think the reason ultimately I felt compelled to write about it is that while I was living in Chicagoland, I was hearing lots of commentary about, you know, country people and Southern people and rural people or whatever, and thinking, you know, these stereotypes that you're passing around don't, you know, a they're offensive, but but they're also just. I don't think you've ever actually met any of these people. Um, right. I got tired eventually of you know introducing myself as from Arkansas, and people like, oh, well, look at that. You can read, and you're wearing shoes. I'm like, are we still doing this? Oh, wow. You know, um, right. and so it was good natured, but it was irritating. You know, after a sure. little while, um, and um, and so I was experiencing the sort of stereotypes of my home place there, but then I would have friends and family who would want to come visit you know, or want to see us, but they were nervous about coming and visiting the big city. And I'd have to tell them, well, first of all, Wheaton, Illinois is not the big city, you know, it's a suburb. Um, so you're going to be fine, but even in Chicago's safe and you know, all the, and so I was, I felt like I was defending both my new home to my, you know, family and older friends and also defending my home place to these new friends. And, then, you know, when we moved back to Arkansas, we were there during the last presidential election where, where the um, so much of the sort of urban rural um, antagonism sort of came up again. You know, it sort of had come up with the yeah. previous elections, um, but it, it came up again uh, with the Trump election. And so I, th- I finally just thought, you know, there's there are books out there that explain the rural existence from a certain point of view. So there's the, you know, hillbilly elegy that talks about a, you know, a very particular kind of poor white rural experience. But I read that and resonated with very little of it. And I thought, well, if this is the only story that is representing this whole, you know, population, there should at least be more stories out there to balance it out. Um, But more than that, I didn't just want to defend one part of the country or one way of living. I had lived in, you know, kind of all the types of places, right? Rural, suburban, urban, small town. I, I, I liked them all f- for different reasons. And I loved and admired people who lived in all those places. And I felt like they didn't understand each other. And if they did, that they would also love and respect each other. And so I just, I didn't want to make an apology for any part particular place. I wanted to just try to help, um, people that I know from different parts of the country, look at each other again for the first time, right? To kind of like mm, look at each other yeah. and say, oh, I see you in a way I didn't see you before. Um, and specifically because I felt like this urban rural antagonism, I had heard it enough in churches, not just like 
rural people disliking urban secular people, but disliking liberal Christians or who they perceived as liberal Christians just because they were in a city or, you know, redneck Christians, the way they're described in the city as if there's something fundamentally wrong with them, not because of their beliefs, but because of where they live. Um, and that that actually like weighed more in somebody's accounting than their shared identity as Christians. Right. And so yeah. I think that's what kind of got me into it was trying to think through, yeah, how, how would I approach this topic in a way that didn't just give people information, but helped hopefully at the end of it, they thought I need to give those people another viewing, right. I need to give those people another chance. Um, so that's kind of what motivated the process. That was That's a long great. answer. It, Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, that was great. And, it, and I think the book accomplishes that. It really does. And it's such a timely uh, message. And I love the way you do it, not just, you know, kind of, okay, here's my thesis and I'm going to defend it, but putting in your own story. Yeah, um, there you. were some moments, man, where I was, I was cracking up, especially, <laughs> uh, you know, things I could relate to, especially little peeks into the evangelical subculture of the 90s. Uh, at one point you talk about, uh, being part of uh, the Hell House, uh, uh -huh. you got to tell listeners. Uh, <laughs> I encourage you to read the book, get the full story. But you got to tell listeners what is a Hell House and what was your role in it. Uh, yeah, well, I may have to keep some of the relevant details a secret just to you know to to, <laughs> to maintain the, the mystique. Um, but uh, <laughs> basically, uh, we called ours a Hereafter House. They uh, others were called That's Hell a Houses. More euphemistic, okay? Yeah, yes. a little more exactly. Um, it's kind of King Jamesy, I guess the hereafter house. Um, <laughs> And that's how we rolled. So that, I guess that's appropriate. But the um, I, a couple of places still do them, I think. But the uh, the gist is, in instead of having like a Halloween festival or something, you use that sort of uh, that time of the year where other people are doing haunted houses, and you and churches would take that opportunity to create you know, a drama about visiting heaven and visiting hell. And it gives you, you know, so the way we did it is people showed up and they went through hell first and then they went up to heaven. And then at the end they heard a gospel presentation and the goal, you know, was to help people think about the, their eternal condition and uh, eternal destination. Scare them into heaven. Exactly. Scare them into heaven. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Yeah. So, you know, when I was a kid, the thing we always, the idea of being in hell was great because it's like there's black lights and there's, you know, screaming and writhing and all kinds of sure. awesome. There's demons Naturally. and people in black hoods and, you know, the whole thing. Heaven <laughs> yeah. is kind of lame, you know, because it's just harps and people standing around smiling, you know. So, um, so we always wanted to participate in the hell side of things and, um, I mean, we did a pretty good job, as I remember it at least. They, uh, I remember they spray painted uh, packing peanuts with some sort of fluorescent paint, so that under the black that lights works. they look like coals, you know. Yeah. And um, you'd have the drunken prom king who dies in a car accident, you know, in hell, and explaining to the people who walk through, you know, if only I'd had more time, and you know, or whatever. So if I'd listened to my parents, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, it's sort of like the old, uh, was it the Everyman from the middle ages, the morality plays where, you know, the characters like malice or whoever meet an end and then they, you know, anyway, so oh, man. I guess we, I, the only antecedent I could think of is like Dante's Inferno or something, but right. Yeah, yeah there you go. Exactly. <laughs> so something like that. So anyway, we've, uh, so we did that. I was too young. By the time we quit doing it, I, I had not made it to, 
the whatever age we arbitrarily chose as appropriate for serving in hell. But I, uh, so <laughs> I played a role in heaven and, uh, maybe the way I could just, maybe the way I'll put it is, um, these things tended to, tended to draw on public discourse and political issues. And sure. as you can imagine, one of the most important political issues in the nineties and still is, but in my childhood, it seemed especially acute, uh, was the abortion issue. And so yes. we, uh, we would have, you know, two sides of that story told in the hereafter house, one in hell and one in heaven. And maybe I'll leave it there for viewers to our listeners to <laughs> find the story and, uh, and, and hear how that ends. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't remember when we stopped, but we did that for a few years when I was a kid or we, you know, when we joined the church, they were already doing it. We did it for a few more years. And, um, after that, it became a little more benign, like we do the Harvest Festival or something like that, you know, instead of the Hereafter House. But um, but that was a staple throughout the region I was in, at least for most of my childhood, was uh, was those kinds of experiences. And I realized that, that this was wild. weird. This is, you know, kind of to the regional thing. I didn't realize this was an unusual experience until I moved to Wheaton and uh, and told friends at a party once about this experience and about my acting debut in heaven. And I just <laughs> shocked everybody at the chili fest, you know, with news of this tale. And so, um, yeah, so that was one of those things. You don't know what's unique about the place you grew up in until you leave it or until you interact with somebody from somewhere else. And, uh, that was definitely true for me that, uh, I just thought I had the most normal childhood in the world until I, learned that in fact I didn't. <laughs> so isn't that true? It's what you're used to. And <laughs> what well, and I to. can tell you, I mean, I grew up in Canada and we had, I don't know if we called them hell houses, but that sort of thing. Uh, our church didn't do them. Uh, not because I don't think we objected to that sort of uh, evangelistic methodology, but we just maybe didn't have the resources. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I can tell you they, it, they, even in Canada, uh, they had those at least when I was growing up. You know, one of the lines that really just stopped me dead in my tracks when I was reading your book is this. You wrote, Christians across America are divided by regional values rather than being united by Christian values. Ouch. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, yeah. Can you explain that a little more? What you mean by that? Yeah. So, um, I'm going to go, this will sound like I'm going off track for a minute, but, and if I don't bring it back, just. I'll you reel know, you back in. Reel me back in. But <laughs> I think, um, you know, one thing that I don't make terribly explicit in the book on purpose is that partly what I'm getting at, um, and we've already touched on this in this conversation. So I'm going to mention it again, is that uh, partly what we're talking about is, um, epistemology. So like how, how you know what you know, or, or yes. why, how you, th how you determine that the things around you are real and true. Right. And so we talked about that in terms of something like the coronavirus, where people who don't have any direct experience and are just watching the news might become suspicious about whether or not it's as big a deal as the news, uh, you know, the media is making it out to be because they look around and they say, well, I don't see any evidence that this is true. And so they don't, nobody calls that epistemology, but that's what's happening, right? Is they're deciding what's true based on the the world around them. And, right. and one it's of the arguments, invisible to us, our epistemology, right? It's just sort of. That's exactly right. Yeah. Thing. yeah. Philosophers and some theologians are the only people who ever like sit down and think about it. Right. But, yeah. but everybody has a set of filters that they use to determine what's true 
and yeah, and and uh, to to articulate their conclusions. Why do I think this instead of that? And um, one of the things I I'm assuming in the book is that that your where we grow up and where we have our formative experiences are actually of more influence than we realize when it comes to our mm. Christian faith. And so I think most people would deny that claim that their regional values are more important than their Christian values. Right. Um, but what I would say is that actually a lot of people hold values that they think are Christian values and really they're just regional values. Um, yes. but you've sort of baptized them because of the culture that you're in. It, it it's, it's hard to separate out which of them comes to us from our sort of cultural location and which of them comes to us from the Bible. And so I think what we see in these sort of urban rural antagonisms is that, um, we're seeing come to the surface a lot of regional values, a lot of um, that that people view as Christian values, and then that's why they get angry with other Christians, right? You're a bad Christian because you think such and such, and I think no, they're a rural Christian, that's why they think such and such, um, and you're right. an urban Christian, that's why you think this way. Um, and once you become aware that that is such a big factor in how you filter the world, right, and even your own faith, then you are in a better position to to learn from other people. Right. And mm, so mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to kind of get at is to help people recognize that where you grow up and the people that you're around and the values of the place that you grew up in shape you really unconsciously and deeply. Um, and that, that it's disagreements at that level, which are so unconscious that often, um, result in division between us. And, um, so right. the goal in the book is to try to bubble that stuff up to the surface. Right. And, and so I'm telling my stories, but I'm, I'm trying to use them as a way to get you thinking about your story and the things that shaped you and the things that you take for granted, um, so that you can, yeah, do a similar kind of self-reflection and try to, try to decide, do I think this because I'm a Christian or do I think this because I grew up in a certain place or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. So I don't know if I ever made it well, back around a, to the, no, <laughs> to the that question. You did, and that, that, <laughs> that is such a noble cause because, I mean, it, it grieves me, honestly, especially when you see it online, Christians going after each other mm-hmm. over political things. And sometimes there's a place for that, right, to debate. But I'm talking about like kind of nasty, mean-spirited attacks. Right. And I'm kind of going, you guys are both believers. You could both say the Nicene Creed and mean every word. I mean, right. <laughs> there's so right. much more in common here. <laughs> um, That's right. And yet often we divide over the silliest things. So my last question for you on this topic is what can we do to kind of at least tamp down the mutual suspicion mm. and at least make a, a, a little bit of progress towards demonstrating love for people on the other side of the cultural aisle. Yeah. Great question. I think, um, you know, one, one thing is I, I think that we should, a good start is to recognize that each of us is at least half the problem. Right. So Mm. like if you say something that irritates me and I, and I interpret what you say is just one more example of the, the way fundamentalists are ruining America or one more way that the liberals are ruining America or whatever. Um, my strong reaction to whatever it is that you said is an indication of something that's going on inside me as much as Mm -hmm. it's about what you think. 
right? And so one of the things that I hope the book will do is, uh, and there are a couple of chapters dedicated to kind of how to do this, but uh, is to encourage self-reflection to say, um, what, what am I, what am I not aware of that shapes my reactions to things and how do I become more aware and how do I deal with those things? Right? Like how do I make them obvious so I can wrestle with them? And so one way I would put that is like, I think it would be great if we all began to apply the same suspicion to ourselves that we apply to everyone else. And, (laughs) you know, because we assume that everyone else has an agenda, but we don't. And I think, nope, we also have an agenda. <laughs> so, so, you know, whenever you're thinking, well, that person's just speaking out of their commitment to such and such, think, yes, and what are you, what am I speaking out of? You know, what, are, what commitment is shaping my reaction to this? And that, so I think the one is self-reflection. Um, yes. I think the other is just, we have to figure out how to have, meaningful relationships with people who are different from us and, uh, and who who we disagree with about things. Mm. And I mean, primarily believers, right? So starting with Christians, um, whether that's a meaningful religion, uh, a meaningful relationship across an ethnic line, across a socioeconomic line, across a political divide or some other social category, right? That like, just actually it's easy to dislike a group of people and it's much harder to dislike an individual person, <laughs> you know, it's so like so true. if you can lump them in as just another, whatever, um, it's easy to dismiss them. But if you sit across the table from them and drink a cup of coffee and eat a good breakfast and just hear about their experience, it's a whole lot harder to be angry about that person's experience or point of view. Um, and I think that the way our culture works is it actually everything in culture in our broader society is divided to kind of keep us apart, you know? So we, Mm. um, we go to coffee shops or restaurants based on our taste and we have a, we have housing based on our class and our income and we have jobs based on our expertise. And, you know, so we're always sort of siloing ourselves out. It actually takes a lot of effort to interact with people who are not like you. Um, right. But I think that if, if the, if the church isn't motivated to do that in the name of, Christian unity. I don't know who is right. I mean, like that really we should be leading the way in, um, in that sort of, uh, dialogue together. And, um, and I think that, so I think the self-reflection is one kind of dealing with your own heart. And then the second is, is actively pursuing people who, who think differently and seeing what you can learn about where they're coming from and, and what difference that might make in, um, Yeah. And their point of view. So true. Yep. And you're right. The church needs to do it because it ain't going to happen if the church doesn't do it because we've got the resources. We've got the command in scripture (laughs) uh, to be one. Right. And so we've got to lead the way. Um, If you've been enjoying this conversation, I just want to encourage you to head over to moodypublishers.com and grab a copy of Brandon's excellent book right now. It's 40% off. That's a great deal. I don't know what that puts it at. It's under 10 bucks. (laughs) Again, the title is Not From Around Here, What Unites Us, What Divides Us, and How We Can Move Forward. Again, head over to moodypublishers.com and you'll receive a 40% discount on Brandon's book today. Uh, Brandon, we have a, a little segment in the show uh, this season called The Writing Life. Um, and I want to ask you a question about your your process specifically with this book. Hmm. Uh, your previous books have been 
on, on certain topics. You wrote a book about small churches. Uh, you've you've written about um, uh, interpreting scripture. You've you've had books that are more scholarly, but this one's different. Uh, it is the way I describe it. It is memoirish, but maybe not a memoir <laughs> per se. Uh, uh-huh. But certainly, it's autobiographical. You're writing about your life. Uh, so my question was, what is that experience like? How does it differ from the mm. other kinds of writings that you've done? Yeah, that's a great question. I, the, well, the very short answer is it's a, this was a lot harder for me. Um, <laughs> sure. It was a lot more fun in the sense that I think this is the kind of book I prefer to read, you know, a sort of creative nonfiction rather than a straight nonfiction, but I never really had the courage to go for it. Um, you know, with other books, it's a lot easier to say, okay, I've got 5,000 words, I need an intro and a conclusion, and I've got to answer this question. And that's just, it limits down, it, it, it makes certain choices for you, you know, the, for, the, mm-hmm. the format does. I felt like with this, there was really no real guardrails other than like help people understand this thing, right, and tell your story. And so I um, actually for a year, maybe more, a year and a half, I, I made an effort to get up every morning and write for half an hour. And I did everything in longhand and literally just sort of worked through life experiences and memories that might possibly apply to what we're talking about. Right. Like I just, Hmm. I just tried to just get them out. Wow. Um, And you went analog, you, you, you got out the pen or pencil. I did. Yeah, exactly. I've, I find uh, that my uh, inner editor uh, is, slower to correct me if I am writing sure. by hand. Um, if I'm typing on the keyboard, I just constantly revise, but for whatever reason, it, maybe it's neurotic, but I can, I can avoid that self-editing when I write on paper. And so I would just sit down and just write. And, um, sometimes I didn't really even know what the stories meant or why they were significant. And many of them didn't make it into the book. So, um, you know, I have a whole, a whole lot of stuff on the, cutting room floor when it was all over. But, um, yeah, so I just, I just sort of processed, um, it was kind of like going to a counselor. It was really great. Cause it's like working, you know, yeah. it's like, Oh, I hadn't thought of that story in forever. I wonder what it means. And like, Oh my goodness, there's this other aspect. And I never realized that that was connected to it, you know? So in that sense, it was really, uh, great. It was life-giving to do that. And then when it was all done, I tried to l- survey it all and say, okay, how does this fit together? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> what does it mean? Um, and obviously there was research in there too. I tried to kind of hide that between the lines in the book, um, but it is certainly supported by research. And then, and so I tried to select the parts of my story that I felt illustrated themes and things that I was finding in the research so that it was not just totally arbitrary and totally my story. Um, but that it actually connected with other realities. And, um, so yeah, I think I found it, the writing of it, uh, hard. I think finishing it was very rewarding because it, it, it did feel in some way like it was more, you know, a more intimate, um, experience than right. writing. Um, yeah, just a strict nonfiction, and, uh, but then it's also scary when it goes out, because I think if you disagree with me about how I read first Peter, there's no skin <laughs> off my nose, but like, if you think my childhood is boring, that's going to hurt my feelings. So, um, <laughs> right. So the, there's some more vulnerability having more exactly, of your, that's your exactly own story right. in there. <laughs> exactly. Totally. So when it came out, I, this, you know, I kind of like held my breath. I thought, Ooh, like I'm eager to hear what people think. So, um, so yeah, I think the process, <laughs> both the process and my own 
personal investment in the process were were pretty different. Uh, but I'm really pleased with how it turned out, and hope to do this kind of thing again. Um, in part because I think this is, you know, this the way we learn is not primarily by reading facts that change our mind. It's by having experiences that change our mind. And so I I wanted to try to mimic that in the storytelling, right? That if I can help you join me on an experience, then maybe that will help you draw conclusions. And um, so I don't know if it's entirely successful, but it was a a fun experiment. And um, it certainly was in my eyes. Yeah. yeah, Thank you. And I can... I can yeah, vouch for that. Um, last question I want to ask you, our last little segment here I'm asking everyone in this season, guilty pleasures. What guilty pleasure, and it can be anything really from entertainment <laughs> to food to whatever, has helped you get through this challenging time that we're in? Ooh. Well, you know, I mean, the last week or so, I've been really pounding the Easter candy. Um, <laughs> right. So there's Same. some of it that did not make it in the basket for the kids. Uh, <laughs> that were supposed to. I had some that made it into their basket, but then into my mouth after. That's so. right. <laughs> yeah. Grace puts it in and you slip it out the other side. Right. right. <laughs> kids yeah. are like, where did the bunny go? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So besides uh, trying not to overeat, uh, but failing sometimes. Um, as I'm talking to someone who wrote the book on self-control, right? That's the, that's right. I was just about to make a plug for my book. Uh You beat me to it. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've been, uh, we've been going through some old, um, series on Netflix, the old comedy series that, uh, when our first, our oldest was born, a friend of ours said, you need you need comedy. You need to laugh mm. because mm-hmm. the days and nights run together and you're tired all the time and all that. And you just need to take breaks and laugh. And I thought, you know, this feels like that. We're tired all the time. I couldn't tell you what day of the week it is. It doesn't really matter because <laughs> tomorrow is going to be very similar. And, um, you know, uh, and so we just need comedy. So we have, we've gone back to some old series I don't know if you've ever seen the show Community, but we're working our way through that yes. uh, right now. Yes, hilarious. And it is as good oh, as I remembered. It's probably been eight or nine years since we watched it. And uh, yeah, so that's the guilty pleasure. We're, uh, we're, we're using um, those good old comedy shows as uh, a palate cleanser at the end of the day. <laughs> so. That's awesome. That's good advice. We do need comedy in this time. Um, that's awesome. Hey, I want to also tell um, our listeners to subscribe to your newsletter. Oh yeah, uh, thanks. I subscribe to your newsletter. I don't know if you sit there and see the opens and see me reading it every week. I always um, look for your every name. second yeah. week, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great. It really is. Um, I, I just, you put so much thought into it. It's timely. Um, it, it's an email newsletter that explores how our cultural assumptions shape our faith. So I want to encourage everyone to sign up for that. You just go to Brandon's website, which is brandonjobrien.com, brandonjobrien.com. And I think if you hunt around, I don't know if there's a pop-up ad uh, that encourages you to sign up, uh, but do that and it will enrich you, I promise. And it's free, right? So, Absolutely. hey, yep. that's a good deal. Um, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to catch up and talk yeah, to you about pleasure. this important topic and your book. Stay safe in New York. Thank uh, you. Yes. Stay in your apartment. Um, and I hope you keep your sanity as you ride out these long days. Again, I want to encourage people to head over to moodypublishers.com, pick up Brandon's book, Not From Around Here. And if you uh, would be so kind uh, to leave a rating or a review on 
uh, for this podcast on Apple or Google Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Uh, that would be much appreciated. Um, I want to leave you this thought. The other night, my wife, Grace, was uh, teaching our kids, well, encouraging them to memorize um, a verse of scripture. And it was 2 Timothy 1, 7. Uh, and this is how it reads. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And as she was teaching them that, that and it was kind of cute because they're kind of acting it out, like flexing their muscles for power and, you know, making a heart shape for love. <laughs> I thought, you know what? That's a good verse for me too. I think that's a good verse for all of us. And we all need to be reminded of that right now. When we look at the news, as we see what's happening in the world, as we look at our bank account or our 401k uh, and think about, the uncertainty of the future. It can be pretty scary. Um, but those are the wrong things to look at because ultimately our security isn't reliant upon those things. It's anchored by God. And that verse reminds us that he has not given us a spirit of fear. So I want to encourage you uh, to, to dwell upon that, uh, to press on. I'll leave you with those words. Thank you for joining us. Stay safe, stay encouraged. And until next time, keep reading.